Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Some stories arrive with one big bang. They kick down the door with a cache of leaked documents or an explosive whistleblower. Others start smaller. Like ripples on water, they begin at one point, their circles spreading outwards and outwards as they grow. This is one of those stories. And it starts with a body. I'm Mae from Clinigan, and this is The Tip-Off the podcast where we take you behind the scenes of some of the UK's best investigative journalism. On today's show, we explore how a year of reporting revealed the huge scale of homelessness in just one borough of London. Uh, My name's Emma Yule, and I'm an investigations journalist for Archant Newspapers, and one of the papers I work for is the Hackney Gazette. Emma Yule is busy. She writes for 10 newspapers across London, and tries to balance covering breaking news with longer investigations. But last year, she stumbled upon a story that would come to take weeks and then months of her time. It starts on a late summer's day. Emma had just filed her last story when the phone rang. Um, The lady who called me was Italian, and she had a little bit of an accent, but actually very articulate. The woman on the end of the phone told Emma she lived in a homeless hostel just down the road in Hackney, a borough in the north of London and one of the patches Emma covered. The woman was calling because a body had been found in the block of flats. And she just started telling me about this death in the hostel, and quite emotional, really, about what had happened. A man had died in one of the rooms, but the body had only been found days later. One of the things that people were so concerned about was that this poor man's body had been really smelling in the hostel. As well as news of the death, the woman on the end of the phone had a litany of complaints about the hostel. And we immediately knew that there, there, there was something there that needed to, to be looked at. Um, and I just remember thinking, God, you know, golly, this is one where we really need to get out and get down there as quickly as possible. Her curiosity piqued. Emma arranged to visit the hostel. The next day, she set off to the address the woman had given her. But arriving at the black metal gates of the four-storey building, she realised getting in wouldn't be easy. We knew immediately that it would be tricky because... I, um, 
uh, strictly they weren't really allowed visitors in this hostel and to get in I, I needed somebody to sign me in so I had to ask um, the lady who'd called would she be able to sign me into the hostel and was she kind of willing to take that risk herself because um, I, you know I was a bit worried about putting her in any position where the hostel would have um, grounds to potentially evict her or you know and anyone that gets kicked out of these hostels is making themselves intentionally homeless so we had to tread really carefully but she did agree So armed with just her mobile, a notepad and a dictaphone, Emma entered the building. The lady hurried her into her room. She had tried to explain to Emma over the phone her concerns about the accommodation, but seeing it in person, it was a shock. I saw the... So we sat and did a good hour's worth of interviewing in her tiny little hostel bedroom, um, which was about the size of a a single bed. um, And again, um, so one single bed in the room and then sort of that amount of space next to it. Um, In that space, there was a kitchen unit, um, a a tiny, absolutely tiny toilet at the back of the room. Um, The whole place just piled from floor to ceiling with bags and all of her stuff. They talked for an hour. While they chatted, Emma glanced around the tiny room, taking it all in. I was I was really kind of quite moved by how much she tried to make it feel like home in these absolutely awful conditions. But amongst that, there were things like um, a sewage pipe had been running along the back wall of her bedroom um, that had been boxed in, but for months she'd lived with that just open, sort of right next to her bed. Um, there was damp on the ceiling and the paint was peeling off. Um, so the, the conditions were just, just really terrible. Slowly, Emma found out how the woman had ended up there. Her background was she had come over to um, London from Milan, where she'd been a really successful fashion stylist, um, and had got into an abusive relationship and um, had eventually escaped that, but had, had been living in hostels ever since. And she was just a very articulate woman, um, but, you know, quite broken in many ways by the situation that life had left her in, but still with such spirit and fight. The room was grim, and Emma was shocked that people would be housed in such conditions. But it was just one room, and she was keen to see more of the hostel. We had to be really careful then because um, they have CCTV cameras in every hostel corridor. And um, I was really keen to see the area, you know, the common areas, but we just had to be a bit careful with taking pictures. And, and I didn't want to sort of have her in a position where somebody was asking her questions about what we were doing. Tentatively, Emma made her way out of the tiny bedsit and wandered the corridors. She was just walking down the stairs when she was hit by the smell of bleach. Um, and as we were coming down the stairs um, from seeing the upstairs set of kitchens, um, we st- I saw a man in sort of decontamination suit walk past. Um, and the, the woman who'd got me into the hostel told me that this was the floor where the gentleman had died, um, had been living. She'd come face to face with evidence of the death that had brought her there. So I put my head round the corner and it was immediately clear that I think that they were in the process of, of cleaning up the, the, the room where he died. Without hesitation, her journalist's instincts kicked in. I just quickly went round the corner and stuck my head through and yeah, they, they were removing a mattress. Um, guys in full decontamination gear, scrubbing this tiny, tiny room clean. Um, so I quickly took some photographs. That photo of the men cleaning out the empty room later made it onto the front page of the Hackney Gazette but not before Emma and her editors agonised over whether to use it. We're really um, thoughtful about the sensitivities of it, but um, we, we, you know, we thought the picture was strong enough without, without stepping over the line um, to really bring home the story to the readers of just how shocking it was really that this man had been left to die in these conditions. Emma later found out more about the man who had died. 
and she reported from his inquest. Yes, later we found out um, he was a software um, engineer, quite a successful guy who'd had his own company. Um, I did cover the inquest um, a few months later um, and he'd had some troubles in his life. Um, his company had run into some financial troubles. Um, there'd been some issues with drinking, but but nothing really severe. But I think as soon as his he started, you know, as soon as he stumbled upon financial worries, basically his life spiraled. He lost his accommodation. Um, he ended up living in a hostel. I think he had had some mental, you know, some registered mental health problems by the time he ended up there. But he hadn't been properly registered um, on the as, in terms of his priority on the housing list. So he ended up living there for a long, long time. Um, it was later heard in the inquest that. Um, he had been to his GP and his GP had written on his notes that he felt that the housing situation was the thing that was contributing most to his declining mental health. It was a sad example of just how easy it was for someone to end up homeless and living in one of these hostels. And to be honest, you know, the cleanup of the room just signalled that somebody else would be back in that hostel room with probably within a couple of days of me having been in there. After the close shave with the cleaners, Emma realised it was no longer safe to do interviews in a hostel. Not wanting to push her luck any further, she decamped to a cafe across the road. There she met with resident after resident of the hostel, all wanting to tell her horror stories about life in the centre. That was a mix of people with mental health problems and people were coming and showing me their bed bug bites from having lived in um, rooms completely infested with bed bugs for weeks on end, <laughs> having to go back every night and sleep in mattresses that they knew they were going to sort of be just just get more and more bites. Um, and I just spent the whole afternoon really hearing the story, the life stories of the people that, that were living in these, these awful rooms. It had been an intense day. Emma's notepad was full of stories of people who had fallen on hard times and found themselves housed in this miserable hostel. She headed home exhausted. You feel intensely drained. Um, they're, they're really highly emotional interviews that you do, and I think I always, um, I always have the utmost respect for how much people share with me about their lives when I do those type of interviews. Um, they're talking about the most intimately personal details of how they live, and often with this particular set of stories about the impact on their mental health. Um, you know, experiences of domestic violence, reasons why people end up homeless. Um, it, it, it's, you know, it, it, it just takes an, an awful lot of guts, I think, to sit down with a journalist who you may be meeting for the first or second time and to talk through those things. And so I always feel a really huge responsibility in terms of making sure I've thought over that story. Have I, have I really understood what people are saying? How am I going to present this? How am I going to do justice to the fact that somebody has, has kind of given me that window into their lives? Um, after having seen the hostel rooms as well, I mean, I, don't, I just came home feeling sort of grubby. <laughs> and she was bringing with her more than just memories. And as soon as I got home, I realised that I got some bites on my leg as well. So one of those journalistic moments where I just like sort of, Suddenly thought, oh God, I'm going to have to, you know, ordered bed bug spray myself and just was really worried about <laughs> having brought them home with me. But um, it, it does, again, it, it, was, it was a question of when we were doing the interviews, there, there are no other chairs in these hostel rooms that just sit on the bed or stand. So I'd spent an hour sitting on a bed, you know, in, in a hostel that later, obviously, everybody had told me was full of bed bugs. So the stories from that one hostel ran over two weeks in Hackney Gazette. 
But Emma knew there was more to the story. This was just one hostel. How many other people were living in similar conditions across Hackney? The ripples of the investigation were growing larger. And so we, we decided, after a lot of toing and froing editorially, to stop reporting on the other case studies that we had then and go back and try and widen the story out and see were there other hostels like this in Hackney? What was the scale of the problem? How many people were actually living in, in this type of accommodation? Um, were there other places that were as bad in terms of size of rooms and, and quality of accommodation? Was this a one-off or you know, was it happening on a much broader scale? So um, at that point, I started putting in FOI requests. FOIs are Freedom of Information Requests, a crucial tool in any journalist toolkit. Yes, um, the Freedom of Information Act is a piece of legislation that allows um, any member of the public to ask um, a public body or organisation for information that they may hold. Journalists make a lot of use of freedom of information requests, um, but we're really only doing that on the same basis that any member of the public would be able to access information that is owned or held by public bodies. So um, to place a freedom of information request, you would draft a letter to the organisation that you want to gain the information from. Um, most will now have a website contact page, which will tell you how to do that. Sometimes you email, sometimes you have an online form that you fill in. And it's as simple as just asking for um, the information that you need and as complicated as making sure <laughs> that you do that um, in as, 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 as tightly worded a way as possible to um, point the organisation towards the exact information that you need. In theory, it's a brilliant tool for journalists because if you send a request off in 20 days, you should have a response back. In practice, um, it's often a case of a lot of toing and froing um, clarifications, you know, appealing um, refused FOI requests that you believe should have been answered. Emma wanted the figures from Hackney Council for the number of people being housed in temporary accommodation, like the homeless shelter she'd visited, and how much that housing was costing the taxpayer. She sent off the request, but would the council respond? Did they even hold the figures? And if they did, what would they show? There was nothing to do but wait. And then the response came back. Um, and I brought this FOI actually to have a look at with you. Um, at, the, at the point that this FOI from Hackney arrived back, I think I knew that we, we had a story that we could start doing a lot more with. So I'd asked for the, the gross cost of temporary accommodation to the council to house people who needed to live in temporary accommodation. And the cost for the the most recent year, which was 2015-16, was £35 million. £35 million to house people in these so-called temporary hostels. And that's not all. The figures from the FOI showed how things had been getting continually worse in Hackney. In 2011-12, the spend on temporary accommodation was £9.4 million. Um, by 2015-16, that's £35 million. The spend had almost quadrupled in just four years. So I was quite stunned, really. Um, that's straight out of the local council taxpayers' pocket. Some comes back from central government, but not all. Um, it really sort of hammered home to me the fact that these exorbitant rates that were being paid for these tiny rooms, you know, it was it, it, was, it was adding up to these huge figures um, for councils. And at that point, I think you start to question, was this good use of money? You know, surely there must be better uses of £35 million to keep, you know, than to keep the homeless homeless. Then Emma found some data held by central government. It showed homeless accommodation broke down by local authority and the housing type. 
Um, there were figures for hostels, B&Bs, um, local authority housing stock, which is council houses, and private sector leased accommodation. When she plotted the data for Hackney in a spreadsheet, it showed a clear story. And what that showed really quickly was that the, the numbers in hostels had almost doubled in that 10-year period, um, whereas the number of people living in council houses or private sector leased accommodation had gone down over the same period. So I had two arrows, one going up, one going down for those, those two columns. And then I think that starts to pose questions for journalists. Why suddenly are councils placing people in hostels and not within their own council flats or within private rented flats? People were now being housed in hostels designed as temporary fixes and left there for years at a time. But it wasn't just the shock of the living conditions that shook Emma. It was how much the council was paying to house people in conditions like this. Having seen these tiny rooms, which I would describe as small as a prison cell and in some cases not as clean and tidy, um, to hear that um, the, the, the councils were often paying up to, well, I think I've got the figures here, let's have a look. In Hackney... Average cost £206 a week. Um, in fact, the, the highest cost I think I had for, for one of those single rooms was about £260 a week. Um, that's £1,000 a month. And um, while that's not a huge budget in London, I think I, it really struck me immediately that there, there would be private rented accommodation available within that budget. Um, and so I was quite stunned, really. You know, I think um, that councils would be paying this much for this accommodation. One woman told Emma, they're paying £260 a week to kill me. That's how it felt to her. It's no secret rents are sky high in London, and Hackney in particular, with huge swathes of the borough being bought up for regeneration. But still, Emma was curious about what else that same budget could buy in the area. We did, I mean, I think I just spent half an hour that first week Googling what was available. And there wasn't loads, but, there, you know, we did find a fairly nice flat in a house, I think, and, and, and a bedsit that looks really clean and tidy and um, much better, certainly, than the hostel rooms. Um, so there, there certainly was other accommodation out there. I think another huge hurdle that people faced is that as, as soon as landlords... Um, know that people are in receipt of housing benefit. They, they're lots of private landlords simply won't accept them. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. So she had the numbers, and they told part of the story, but Emma wanted more. So I'm starting at this stage to think about, you know, some of some of the whys of this data. Why why are these things happening? Who can I ask now to find out some of the answers to these questions? Um, and also who who are these people that are affected? Who are these two thousand? 600 people who are living in in temporary accommodation. Emma wanted to find them. She had lots of good stories from one hostel, but what about the others? Yeah, that was really, that was probably the toughest bit, I'd have to say. Um, I mean, I still had some of the contacts I'd I'd had from going to that first hostel um, six months before. And so I contacted them again um, as a start to ask if they could put me in touch with anyone else. Um, And they they did manage to give me, I think, three or four other people. Um, one of the things that was really tricky, um, often the people I was trying to interview uh, for understandable reasons were living quite chaotic lives. Some were in and out of hostels, some were sometimes street homeless. Um, some had access to phones, others didn't. Um, it, it was it was quite difficult trying to arrange meetups. And where I could, I just made sure that we had a time and a day in a cafe to meet because at least then I could be there and... and um, meet them in person with you know with, with um without having to rely on sort of telephone interviews or anything like that um but we did something else really simple which was just to put an appeal into um the Hackney Gazette um a really tiny news in brief we call them a sort of 50 word story asking if you're living in a homeless hostel and you've got a story to tell please get in touch and in fact um three of the case studies that formed the core part of the the launch of the campaign came from um that appeal in the papers so um we were lucky really i suppose that we we had that sort of um direct um line to our, our, our audience of readers in hackney and and that really paid off soon emma found herself on the way to another hostel this time one in manor house we arrived and signed in. Um, we didn't say that we weren't journalists, but they didn't ask us either. And I, 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 my strong sense there was because we were fairly formal looking, I think they probably assumed that we were from the council. So that worked in our favour that um, we didn't have to fib about who we were. And um, the young mum came down and met us in reception. She took us upstairs to her hostel room. Um, these hostels, the communal areas are very sterile. Often I find they're clean, but they're, you know, often white or neutral coloured walls, um, dark floors. Just um, you, you sort of feel that you're, you're in a sort of quite sterile place as soon as you walk into them. Um, she had a room on the first floor that was sort of down a few corridors at the, the end, of a, end of a long, narrow corridor, the various numbers on the doors as you walked in. 
And she took us into her room and I think my immediate reaction was, wow, it's tiny. <laughs> um, her little girl was asleep in the bed. Um, again, it was bright and colourful, you know, all of the things you'd associate with a young mum's life, toys, you know, pretty kids' clothes, um, a tiny little shoe in the middle of the floor. Like with that first hostel, conditions were difficult. The young woman explained how, because the room was so small, her two-year-old daughter had been sharing her single bed since she'd been born. There wasn't enough room for a cot. She was trying to make do, but everyday living was tough. Am I supposed to sit in silence from the minute she's gone to sleep at seven, she said. I don't want her to be up till nine because I want to sit up and watch telly. It's little things like that. Emma looked around at a whole life crammed into a tiny room. Bags piled up to the ceiling. Um, there's a little kitchenette, which was, again, just covered with stuff. Um, toys, a pram, um, you know, all the stuff you'd associate with a kid sort of stuffed into a corner at the end of the bed. Um, I remember having to move my bag um, from place to place because the room was so small that the photographer couldn't actually take the pictures um, without getting it into shot. Um, a tiny bathroom that had a little kid's bath um, in a shower where the baby was um, was bathed. So we were just trying to really pick up, you know, the, the really personal details of this young woman's life, which she'd crammed into a space that, you know, I think most people would think would be two or three rooms. Every Everything about this young woman's life was just in one tiny room. This woman told Emma how she'd been homeless since she was kicked out of her family home at 18. She was housed in a hostel when she was just four months pregnant, but was still there more than two years later. Surviving on just £120 a week, there was no way she could afford anything more for her and her young daughter. So she was stuck there. Eventually, Emma managed to speak to more than 20 people. She heard the story of a teenage boy who'd been taken into care after his family rejected him for being gay. At 17, despite his young age, he'd ended up in emergency accommodation in one of these hostels. He told Emma, I heard it all. The night screams from the mentally distressed neighbour living across the hall. The violence which makes you double lock your door. I hope no child goes through what I went through. Then there was a self-employed craftsman who had ended up in a hostel after being evicted from his flat of 13 years when he fell ill and was unable to work. He explained to Emma how he had slept rough until the council found him a hostel bed in October 2015, but the threat of violence in that shelter was ever-present. In fact, Emma unearthed figures that showed the police were called out there on average once every one and a half days. Scared to stay, some people left, preferring to take their chances sleeping rough on the city streets. After months of work, pulling together the figures, waiting on FOIs and tracking down so many case studies, Emma and her editors were nearly ready to publish. But there was far too much there for just one article. We started to think about how does this become a campaign and, you know, we can tell all these people's stories, but... Um, you know, journalistically, why why do we do that? It can't just be people feeling sorry for people living in homeless hostels. You know, what are we actually hoping to achieve by reporting? And we we were really sort of scratching our heads there because um, 
I, I knew at the heart of this whole problem is is just the housing crisis and the soaring rents and soaring cost of property in London is is really what all the experts were were saying was at the heart of the problem, and we weren't going to be able to fix that with you know a few weeks of reporting in in the Hackney Gazette. So. We really thought long and hard about how we could present it in a way that the reader would be able to be involved with and connect with. And we, th we thought the best way to do that would probably be to try and work with the council to get access from them and find out why they were struggling to fix the problem. She wanted to get officials on side, but she had to battle for a while for the town hall's press office to take notice. Finally, she managed to get their attention and she interviewed the mayor. He told her that government policy such as the controversial Housing and Planning Act, had fuelled problems locally. The act could lead to the sale of higher-value council homes as they became vacant. And on their estimates, that could lead to a loss of a further 700 council properties in Hackney. Councillor Glanville told Emma, We could get to the ridiculous situation where you have a family in temporary accommodation that needs a home, and rather than being able to give it to somebody, you have to sell it. The problem was never going to be solved the day after Emma's stories came out, but they did have impact. Readers wrote in with comments about their own situation. The newspaper created a manifesto for changes they'd like to see and encouraged readers to sign up to a housing pledge. And for that very first woman, the one that picked up the phone and called Emma that evening, things got better too. When Emma's story came out, the woman sent a copy to the council and then she was moved into her own flat. I spoke to her earlier this week, and she said she thinks Emma's reporting played a role in that. Yeah, definitely. I think definitely had, because now they couldn't hide themselves anymore. So, <laughs> that's it. I'm so glad. Now she's much happier. I have finally uh, my space, and no one around me is screaming or... Yeah, I have a normal life like I had before. <laughs> it's, it's, it's perfect. I'm so happy. And I'm happy for the people that are there, you know. I'm happy for that. I'm, I, I got the flat and and okay. In fact, every person featured in Emma's articles has since been placed in better accommodation. So there you go. An investigation whose ripples grew from the tragic death of one man to the exploration of a borough-wide problem. But beyond that, it's also a prime example of the power and necessity of local newspapers. An important reminder when staff and resources for local papers have been mercilessly cut in recent years. According to the Centre for the Study of Journalism, Culture and Community, 58% of the UK is no longer served by a local daily newspaper. And more than 400 local journalism jobs were lost over the last two years. But Emma was still there to report on the ground in Hackney. I think local papers are right at the heart of their communities. We take those calls um, from people on the ground every day. But I think local journalists just have that patch knowledge that you will not find, you know, for all the brilliant work that national reporters do. Um, we're, we're specialists in our areas and, and I think that's what really comes through sometimes when you see local reporting at its best. That's all from this episode of The Tip-Off. Next time. Well, I guess you normally kind of sit back and think, OK, if I'm going to prove that these managers are taking bungs, how would I go about doing it? Claire Newell explains how the Daily Telegraph's investigations team exposed a world of corruption and greed 
and British football. This has been a tip-off, hosted and produced by me, Maeve McLennigan. Our theme music is by Dice Muse, another music in this episode by Poddington Bear. Thanks to Emma Yule. You can find links to some of her stories, including some of the photos from those hostels, in the show notes. If you've liked this episode, please do tell a friend, write us a review on iTunes, and stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.